I was looking up infuriating in the dictionary the other day, and there was a picture of Arthur Hayes. Oh, were you trying to read a blog post of his at the time? I was enjoying a blog post of his, which started out silly and got smart. We can cover that later. But he was also on several podcasts this week, shilling the Ethereum merge. Oh, so disappointing. But it's classic Arthur. On the one hand, he's a degenerate altcoin gambler. And if you take his advice, you'll get the timing wrong and you'll probably lose all your money. But of course, he'll make a huge amount of money because he's infuriating. On the other hand, he sort of gets Bitcoin too. Is it like he just wants to just gamble in the casino? Like he knows ultimately where all this is going, but in the meantime, he just wants to make a buck? I just feel like he's a millennial and it's all lulls, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to party in the club. Meanwhile, I'm all like, I get all like, but it's only delaying humanity's salvation. I mean, not quite, but you know, it does feel like the more uh, casino altcoinery you get involved in, the more you're taking energy and time and finances away from Bitcoin, which ultimately does slow the adoption. I hear you. At the same time, I'm reading a book right now called Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. And it's a history of financial speculation and nothing has changed for thousands of years. These bull markets, people losing their mind, 99% of the projects are a scam. That describes, okay, let me list, the 1825 railway mania, the 1812 South Sea Company bubble. I think in maybe 1810, there was a Louisiana company bubble in France run by a Scotsman who invented fiat currency at the same time. You could change the words, you could change the technologies to crypto, and we would be describing 2017 and 2020. Right. We're all familiar, of course, with the gold rush and that mania too. You're right. It's it's human nature. You know what? I, I had that realization when I looked at all the, the just degeneracy going on in DeFi and how Ethereum is clearly built to pump and for financial instruments. And it's like, okay, we had this opportunity to create something new to do better. And we just recreated the casino. Why would we do that unless it's just in a lot of our nature? We love to just play with these things. In fact, I think humans are maybe particularly wired to, to add value to these abstract concepts. And then perhaps it's just a, a nature of our evolution and it reflects on our financial markets. I just don't think it reflects our best. A little context. One of the first manias, I think it actually happened in the 17th century. So it was, I think, 1625. And what happened was a British sea captain came back to England and he had discovered some treasure a sunken Spanish treasure ship full of gold. And a couple investors had speculated on this treasure finding expedition and they made 160,000% on their speculation. They made huge returns. And this started off a speculative bubble focused around treasure hunting. And so there were a lot of patents that then companies were formed around to create diving bells, diving technology to find more treasure. And it was just like an ICO boom. You had these companies, they pumped and early investors sold off their shares and made huge returns and then all of them went to zero. All of them went bankrupt. But here's the thing. This actually did stimulate the development sure, yeah. air pump technology, which then comes back in the 19th century for the Industrial Revolution. Interesting. Okay, so basically, like Arthur, humans are infuriating. All of this rampant speculation and stupidness, I just don't think we can fight it. Maybe we can get moralistic and judge it. Reading the history of these financial panics, the people who come out best, in my opinion, are the people like Arthur it's like they're sociopaths. They make no judgments. They don't care. They're just there to make a buck. And they ride the pump up, not all the way to the top. They generally know to get on and then get off. But the people who really get wrecked are the people who get on, they get off, and then they, they weaken towards the end of the bubble and they get on again right at the top. Most famous person to buy the top of a bubble, Sir Isaac Newton. Really? Yes. He's a very smart guy. Smart guy. But I think he got rich at the beginning of a bubble. I think it was a South Sea bubble, maybe. And then towards the end, 
He got greedy. He bought back in, completely wrecked. Hmm. Well, everybody gets the uh, South Sea bu- bubble at the uh, price they deserve, as they say. <laughs> Welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, September 9th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. Wow. Did you say September 9th? No. Stop it. Are we getting latency when I'm sitting a foot from you? Is that? Yeah. Well, I just like to turn. I have a little knob here. I can just kind of turn it up. You know, I, I just want to set a baseline. You have another knob there. It says Bitcoin difficulty adjustment. Yeah. This part of the uh, Satoshi Nakamoto innovation is this knob here on my mixer that's tied to the difficulty. I generally turn it up, but every now and then I throw people for a loop and I turn it down a little bit. Stream your sats to request a difficulty adjustment. Yeah. Today's episode is heavy on the economics and news, light on the education. Do we have an education section? Hmm. I mean, you could consider the whole show an education section. We could talk about running scripts manually in Umbral. Maybe that would count as education. Okay. <laughs> Some hot Umbral tips. In this week's news, the pool in BTC mining pool is looking insolvent. How does a mining pool become insolvent? Well, that's an interesting question. We have a terrifying and sad story of a Bitcoiner who does some peer-to-peer trading. Yeah, maybe he turns it into a business. Well, he got a federal charge for operating an unlicensed money transmission business and was threatened with a 30-year prison sentence. And they threatened to go after his wife, too. And the feds lied in the case documentation. Ouch. Deets on that. In economics, we have Lynn Alden's August newsletter, which is a doozy. It focuses on cycles. And it's almost as if Arthur read that newsletter before writing his latest blog post for the war, which also deals with capital control cycles, globalization and anti-globalization cycles, and what that means for retail investors. You might say we're cycle tracking. Ba-da-bing. If I could have made like the sound of a bicycle wheel going around, a cycle, le cyclo. We have brought back the energy section, which several readers told us to get rid of. Sorry. A pretty reasonable economics professor shares a view that's been expressed on the pod that rapidly decarbonizing is just not something that a civilization can do. No reason to add that other than to highlight that someone agrees with us. It's funny, you know, when you say something like, oh, society can't decarbonize at the rate they're doing, a historian says it's impossible. That's a pretty big statement. I'm actually looking forward to talking about that. The ramifications of that are huge. It turns out that the Russian Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Europe that they rely on for gas throughout the winter has been shut down. I think we totally called that. Yeah, we called that. Yeah. And Gazprom, the Russian state-owned energy company, is reportedly getting paid in yuan, renminbi, the Chinese currency for gas, another nail in the coffin of the petrodollar. And there's also some news that Russia is talking about using cryptocurrency for importing stuff. So I think uh, I think we're a little ahead of schedule on that. Yeah. The next step is gas for Bitcoin, I think. We'll see. Uh, I thought, you know, we'd see Iran make their move, which we just talked about recently. I didn't expect to hear Russia do it so soon. I'm looking forward to chatting about that, too. In privacy, Janine's This Month in Bitcoin Privacy is back. It's juicy. It's actually three months of Bitcoin privacy, so that'll be a chunk of change. And then in Bitcoin education, we're going to talk about manually updating your Umbral instance, which is a Bitcoin quote-unquote node in a box project. And some people have had trouble updating from version 4 point something to version 0.5. Well, you can get around that with a manual script that is in the command line folder. So we'll tell you how to do that. And that is totally not because we are creating an education section at the last minute. Totally not. And totally not because we've both struggled with this problem. (laughs) Still struggling. Now, how does a mining pool go bankrupt? I was wondering this. I'm thinking like, you know, if they were the mining operation, I'd say, uh, you know, their capital expenses got ahead of them. They expected a Bitcoin price to go for a while. So they took a lever 
large loan out. They bought a bunch of equipment. Right. They're a pool. So other people are buying the hardware. Other people are doing the capital investments. Let's explain what a Bitcoin mining pool is. Well, this is really, if you're a Bitcoin miner, really the only way you're going to make Bitcoin these days. But it sounds exactly, the name is exactly what it is. It's a pool of people that are putting their efforts together. And when you pool it like that, you increase, if you increase the odds, at least one of you in that pool is going to get awarded some Bitcoin. And then you share that with the rest of the pool. And that comes down to the pool specifics, how they have it set up. Different pools have different rates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the idea is, is that you have multiple people in this pool and a large pool could have many people getting uh, a Bitcoin reward, you know, uh, a day. They can have multiple people. It can, so you can kind of almost get a, not a guaranteed, but a steady amount of payout versus if you just mined on your own as a individual, you'd get like that occasional reward. Maybe you could mine for quite a while. I mean, you do hear stories about single mining people with one S9, you know, every now and then striking it big, but it's less common. Whereas a pool is almost going to guarantee you're going to get a little something for your effort. I think the key is a mining pool makes Bitcoin payouts more predictable. So if you're a professional miner, if you win a block once a year, maybe you're in the green, maybe you're making money if you win a block once a year. But because Bitcoin mining is this probability distribution, there's, let's say, a 70% probability you'll win a block this year, a 90% probability you'll win a block in two years, but there is a 10% probability that you won't win a block for five years. So you can't run a business with that sort of uncertainty. So what the pool does is all of the miners get together and they coordinate with a central server that's the pool operator. And the pool operator basically divvies up the universe of where the blocks might be. I'm hand-waving right now. I'm literally waving my hands right now because I don't quite understand this. But if we imagine that the valid hash for a Bitcoin block is floating out there in the sea of infinite numbers, then the mining pool is sort of dividing up this infinite space into sectors and giving sectors to different miners to sort of explore to find valid hashes in those sectors. And miners do certain amounts of work and the pool can kind of observe how much work is being done by each miner. And then when someone wins a block in the mining pool, they distribute the rewards to each miner in the pool proportional to how much work they did. So the centralizing side is the pool operator gets the block reward and they custody it temporarily before giving everyone their fair share and they kind of get to decide what the fair share is. So they could cheat, but also miners can leave the pool at any time. So if one pool is treating you poorly, you move to another pool, start your own. It's fairly competitive. Right. You got options. And if you look at the mempool.space slash mining dashboard, you can see the biggest Bitcoin pools. Over 50% of Bitcoin hash is held in the top four pools. Foundry USA is 23%, Antpool 18%, F2P pool 14%, and Binance pool 10%. And then Poolin, which is probably uh, has some financial problems, they're down at, I think, pool number six. So they were not insignificant, but they weren't also one of the biggest. They've also lost 40% of their hash rate since these problems have come up. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Now, the goss is that Poolin has a custodial wallet that they've encouraged miners to use. So they custody the funds in that wallet. And if you leave funds in that wallet, they'll reduce the pool fees. They'll give you some yield because they've been messing around with DeFi stuff. And this is kind of a red flag to me because when a service starts encouraging you to deposit with them, it kind of uh, feels like they really want those Bitcoin. Maybe they need them. Maybe they have a liquidity problem. It kind of feels like they're doing a lot of other things besides just running a pool. Basically, it sounds like Poolin has become an unregulated financial entity. And I've heard that they lent some money to Three Arrows Capital that then managed to incinerate billions of dollars. So they're a bit short at the moment. Isn't it interesting when you start messing around 
around in, in the altcoin ecosystem, you inevitably get wrecked, you know? Like, and you look at a Bitcoin mining operation, a pool, you know, like this, you think, oh, this, these are Bitcoiners, right? This is a Bitcoin only operation. But you never know, you know, in the back end, every now and then people slip into DGEN and they can't help themselves. Right. And they basically... They slip into it. Well, they also mine Ethereum. And I think some of the problems that they're having are actually centered around Ethereum and maybe Ethereum derivatives and... And the fact that they're not going to be able to use any of that hardware pretty soon. <laughs> right. The merge is happening next week, probably. And so Ethereum miners can go screw themselves, according to the Ethereum Foundation. Thank you for your service. Now get the... Yeah. Get thank, out. Thanks for legitimizing our blockchain and making it possible for us to get rich and for us to build everything on top of you for the last seven, eight years. But now... <laughs> see ya! Enjoy your difficulty bomb, suckers. We've decided that energy usage is now bad. I hope you mind enough to become your own uh, validator. Otherwise, join one of your centralized staking operators today. Our next bit of Buzzkill news is the story of a Bitcoiner, and it's available on his website, drbitco.in, who had sort of a consulting business, was doing a lot of peer-to-peer trading between cash and Bitcoin, and got on the radar of a federal agency who then requested information from this individual, who then provided it and then was eventually charged with operating an unregistered money transmission business and threatened with a 30-year prison sentence. And his wife. And his wife, too. So she, I think they he'd used a bank account that they both had yeah. their name on. To me, is particularly alarming that just his wife gets implicated because her name was on the bank account. I think this is pretty typical. My sense is that the people who run criminal investigations, their incentive is lock people up and they'll do whatever it takes to lock people up. And frankly, they're not really penalized for locking up innocent people. People better be careful and lock up everybody instead of really caring too much about who's innocent, who's guilty. And, yeah. and also 30 years for a financial crime. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that all sorts of violence gives you a sentence that's less than 30 years. And I think they come in really aggressive to try to force you to take their plea deal, which this guy did in this case. What he got in that plea deal was that his wife didn't get in trouble, right? That was what he got out of the plea deal. This is a tricky one, I think, because there's always two sides to every story. And it may have been that he was advising someone a little bit on how to kind of navigate the financial system, giving them a little bit of extra information. And that person ended up being connected to financial scams. And so, you know, they they followed the trail and the Bitcoin pointed back to this guy. I think that this is an important case to talk about. Frankly, I don't think the details are too important. Just the fact that someone was doing peer-to-peer Bitcoin stuff, they get threatened with a crazy, punitive, destroy-your-life prison sentence. And it's it's scary, right? And it, I think that this case is almost designed to frighten people away from peer-to-peer sovereign Bitcoin usage and into custodial Bitcoin on and off ramps like Cash App or Coinbase or something like that. Sure. I think it's probably worth noting too, it seems, although we don't really know 100%, but it seems there's about a dozen cases people have tracked down like this that are going on right now where a peer-to-peer Bitcoin exchange is kind of at the center of the case. And is there a common thread? Maybe these people are pretty doing pretty large volumes or they're trading pretty frequently. So it's kind of starts to look more like a business or yeah. an OTC desk. Yeah, I didn't read all of them, but it's generally like... You could kind of argue maybe they're a money transmitter, but also at the same time, it almost looks like in every case, it's overstated. There's quite a bit of what seems to be overstating the validity of it. Like uh, the, the individual we're talking about, he claims like his net profit on all of it 
for his business was $15,000 over like an eight year period. That's not a lot of money for a business over eight years. That is nothing, basically. So what's our view? Okay, I think that it's a good idea to look at cases like this, kind of see what happened and see what the red flags for the authorities are, because no one wants to get on the authorities radar because we are small fish. We're swimming in a sea with gigantic megalodon super sharks called the FBI, the Secret Service, the local police, whatever. And yes, if they see you, they will find something illegal about what you're doing. I think that we're currently in a state, the end of a cycle. Many things have been regulated. And at this point, I'm sure that all of us are breaking some law, big or small. Now, unfortunately, there hasn't been a very grown up and serious discussion about financial regulation for a long time. And as a result, this kind of anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist financing stuff has gone completely out of control. And no one's even asking the question, do these laws actually prevent money laundering or terrorist financing? And the answer is no, they don't. They just make banking more expensive for normal people. They price a lot of poorer people out of the financial system and they criminalize a lot of behavior that should not be criminalized. Like I'm pretty sure that if you're having a trouble sending money and I take money from you and then I send it under my own name, I'm pretty sure that's money laundering because I sent it under my own name. So you could end up helping out someone in a very benign, non-sneaky, non-bad way and accidentally end up breaking yeah. a law. A lot of us are doing it unintentionally is your point. Like you're doing right. it now. And in the case of this individual too, just one more detail that might matter. Uh, he's in trouble today. He's dealing with legal issues right now as we record for Bitcoin that I think he sold three or four years ago. So it, you have to imagine to him when they came knocking on his door, he's like, what are you even talking about? Like, I don't even know. And then he had to like replay like years of history and go, oh. So it's it's interesting that it's something you could do today that they won't even come knocking on your door for five years for. I don't want to victim blame here or throw this person under the bus. Having read through their website and their explanation of what happened, it's just hard for me to understand how anything that was done by this person was illegal. You know, it just looks like a person experimenting with a new technology and maybe doing a little business with it. Saw an opportunity to make money and took it. Well, here are the red flags, I think. The first is that it seems that this person had some kind of business, sort of a consulting business or something, and it's not clear what kind of consulting they were doing. It seems to have been a little bit of financial in nature and that maybe doing a peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trade was somehow part of this consulting service. That's a red flag, I think, because now you're charging someone money, you're doing something financial. This starts to look like a regulated activity in the United States. And it appears he may have also advised that they, they put it down on their end as a marketing expense. Right. If someone's asking you a question like, how should I do this for my taxes or how should I do this for accounting or something like that? Or how do I do this to avoid the money uh, tracking, like, you know, under $10,000 deposit stuff? That question came up. The answer is, repeat after me, I have no idea. I can't advise you on that. That's something you have to figure out on your own what's right for you. And I think another issue is that some of the people that this individual was interacting with, at least one of them was involved in a financial scam. And if you're doing peer-to-peer -peer trading and someone says something that gives you a hint that something might be wrong, you need to cut off that relationship and walk away. Because at the end of the day, this is someone who got tangled, like 
barely involved with, but just touched someone doing something illegal. And then all of that illegal association rubbed off on him. And then he was suddenly threatened with 30 years in jail. Yeah. So you really want to avoid that. If he just, if he behaved like that chat message was being read by an FBI agent at the time and then behaved in that manner, he probably would have been a lot better off. Just assume that we're under mass surveillance because we are and be a little paranoid in that respect. So this is not a PSA to not use RoboSats, not use Hoddle Hoddle, not use, oh God, what's the other one? BISC, not use BISC. It's a PSA to try to protect yourself, which means do not communicate with people through your email address, emails or postcards. Okay. So if you're doing a peer-to-peer trade, you better not be using an, an email or a phone number or something that's associated with you. You better be using a VPN. You better be using Tor. You're not sharing personal details. You're not chit-chatting. Okay. You're not asking people how they acquired their Bitcoin or cash. You mean, just, you really want to be very circumspect because there's a lot of potential targets for unjust legal persecution. And if you're a slightly harder target, odds are the easier target will be the one that runs into trouble. And so I think that this person with their consulting business and this sort of slightly muddy relationship between a business and peer-to-peer trading, that was a target. Whereas individuals who occasionally buy sats peer-to-peer, even if they do fall under the gaze of Sauron and a law enforcement agency somehow becomes aware of them, you know, it's a different profile than someone who seems to be doing business consistently and there's some other service being provided that might be financial in nature. It's possible too, if this individual was engaging in this practice today, they maybe would have access to tools that would make things like a coin join simpler, right? There's an element of this that they tracked back the transactions on the blockchain back to this individual. And perhaps he could have done something with those coins before he sold them to somebody to break that connection. It's a good point. So it's a complicated, messy story. It's not super clear that we can make, you know, that, like there's no moral here, I think. Yeah, I think, that, well, there is a lesson that they're on, they are watching, right? Because it's, it appears there's multiple cases underway and it's something they're taking seriously. And they released, they released a statement, something about, you know, they're determined to eradicate any criminal activity that uses Bitcoin and blockchain technologies or something like that. And frankly, this is actually relevant to Arthur's piece, which we'll get into later, which has to do with closing the exits of a fiat system. And peer-to-peer Bitcoin trading is an exit. It's a scary exit. China has been trying to close that exit for several years now, too. Scary exit for your fiat overlords that needs to confiscate everyone's capital using inflation. Yeah, and control everything. But great for the people, especially when they need to do something in real life, peer-to-peer. And not something you really want to take away. But, I mean, obviously, they have their motives. I have been waiting with bated breath for Lynn Alden's monthly newsletter. I don't think there was a July newsletter. Was there? I think instead she was writing that bigger piece on Lightning. That was really good. Mm -hmm. Well, her August newsletter is out and it has to do with cycles. And so she starts by talking about investment cycles and the idea of growth stocks versus value stocks and how there are periods where growth stocks outperform value and then value outperform growth. We appear to be in the beginning of a value outperforms growth cycle. And that kind of coincides with the need for energy, the need for commodities, kind of the real world overtaking the financial world in a sense. She frames it as the hard asset categories like commodities, real estate, infrastructure, manufacturing, things that are like real, true, almost hard assets in a way versus things that are growth, aspirational, building towards the future, which is like tech stocks, risk assets, things like that. And those aspirational investments aren't necessarily a scam or bad even. In the 1960s, she talks about how there were companies like Disney, Coca-Cola, and Xerox, and they produced real 
real serious products that were very useful and very successful. But the problem was towards the end of that growth stock cycle, you were paying so much for these good companies that they were just overpriced. And then in the 70s and 80s, those stocks provided terrible returns because if you bought them at the highs and then they fell 80% and inflation was high and gold was skyrocketing and I don't know, maybe oil stocks or something were performing very well, buying tech stocks at the peak was a bad investment, even though they were real companies doing real stuff. So the price you pay for things is important. Yeah, she adds, looking at just the bigger picture, she says, quote, the world has invested quite heavily into technology, but not so much in natural resources and heavy industry lately. And as the past year has shown us, we're due for another shift in focus. And this gets to the idea of cycles. We've been in a cheap energy, cheap real world stuff, expensive financial world stuff. Sorry, that's so vague. The real materials that build things like oil and steel and wood was very cheap for the past 10 years. And financial products like tech stocks were very expensive. And now things are kind of reversing in the sense that speculative risk assets, growth stocks are down a lot and real commodities seem to be expensive. And companies that produce kind of understandable consumer staples seem to be performing very well. And the way that Lynn talks about this is that there hasn't been enough investment in the infrastructure that produces energy, maybe food, maybe sort of real commodity products. And we need a period of high prices to send a message to the world, hey, you should build more of this stuff, pick up some of this money, and then predictably we'll overbuild the infrastructure. Commodity prices, because they have a low stock to flow ratio, commodities are not a good store of wealth. They're highly volatile and therefore highly speculative. These prices will crash and then we'll enter a new cycle where commodities and value stocks will be down and growth stocks will rise again. She also identifies that we're reaching the end of a period of cheap labor because cheap labor is associated with globalization. We seem to be moving into an anti-globalization period, but also even the third world countries like China that previously provided cheap labor, their demographics are declining. So we're almost in the midst of a global demographic decline. And as far as I know, there are only two places that could provide cheap labor into the future. That's India and the countries in Africa. Well, I don't really hear any news about India opening up or Africa resolving their structural problems so that they could become a global manufacturing hub. Instead, I hear that global warming and water shortages seem to be making things more difficult in those places. So it sounds like that. China in particular. In fact, the droughts have caused energy production to fall considerably. Uh, she really puts it in perspective here. She says, it's difficult to overstate how much electricity China currently generates. Their terawatt an hour year numbers dwarf every other country, including the United States. And that makes perfect sense because the heavy industry of North America and Western Europe was basically shipped to China. And so all of that energy demand was moved to China. In fact, it was taken off of the clean grids relatively of North America and Europe and put onto the dirty grid of China. And I think this is kind of part of the outrage in the Bitcoin community around conversations about energy, because this idea that Europe was going green was completely preposterous. If you move all of your heavy industry to a country that burns a lot of coal and then you start installing solar panels and generating power with solar, again, solar panels that were built with coal in China, then you're not green. You're a you're, LARPer, a you're hypocrite. Just, you're outsourcing the problem and it turns out the whole planet's connected. That kind of hypocrisy has always been hilarious. And something else Lynn points out in here is because of this poor energy planning in most of the West, but it is particularly obviously bad 
right now in Europe, they are now importing energy at astronomical prices, right? Well, because those prices are so high, guess what that's doing? It's causing sellers to stop selling to third worlds and, and smaller markets, poorer markets, and instead they're selling to Europe because they can make a ton of money, which means it's creating an energy crisis all the way down. Now, multiple nations, it is not a Europe energy crisis, it's a worldwide energy crisis. And I think she does a great job of putting that in perspective. And it's just more acute in some areas. And that is a fascinating, like, counter pressure to the globalization effort. It's like almost the only force that probably could have stopped this massive globalization that was happening, right? It's like it's the energy, you just can't get around it. It is one of the hardest real true assets out there. Everything needs energy. And energy is very local. It's hard to move energy around especially natural gas. Now, Lynn is a financial analyst. So this newsletter is about how to look at the world, understand the trends, and then make money off of them. So if that's your baby, read this article, look at her portfolio updates. She has a public portfolio that she trades. You can just follow along and basically trade a portfolio that Lynn Alden is managing. That's pretty cool. But if that's not your bag, it's still really fascinating to read. And it moves pretty nicely into Arthur's article for the war. And I found this article initially super frustrating because he does his thing where he's very provocative. He says, are you a patriot? Are you a capitalist pig who fights on the side of imperialism? You're part of the fifth column, aren't you? You know, it's just all of this sort of inflammatory kind of BS. And I think that's kind of why Arthur is so infuriating because he's in many ways a very insightful person. On the other hand, he's a degenerate altcoin trader. On the other hand, he ran a Bitcoin casino that in some ways was a very kind of pure Bitcoin only business. In other ways, I don't know, they allegedly ran a trading bot that traded against their own customers and liquidated them. Is that true? I don't know. But they could probably demonstrate that it wasn't true and they never haven't. So yeah. is he is he a good guy? Is he a well, you know, bad makes, guy? That, Who knows? That's All that just makes you a, an innovator in the Web3 space. Right. And he pumps a lot of altcoins, a lot of tokens. And I just read that stuff and it makes me feel sad. But maybe I'm just jealous because, you know, I didn't get early in on Shiba. You're just a no-coiner. You're a Shiba no-coiner. I'm a Shiba no-coiner. And you know what? Like, how good would you feel as a Shiba holder right now knowing that their devs just published their credentials up on GitHub to AWS? Yeah, buy some more. You know, fill that bag. So was it the Shiba... Inu? Website? What what credentials? You think I, you think I read it up on that? I don't know. Uh, a security researcher just published a blog reporting that the developers behind the Shiba Inu coin, which is number 13 on the list, apparently published their AWS credentials to GitHub. Uh, he tried to contact the team, but was not able to find any bug bounty program or responsible disclosure policy or even the people he was supposed to reach out to. <laughs> Sounds like a really well-run project right there. <laughs> oh, that man. thing's definitely going to the moon. Yep. Go get your dog coin, everybody. There's a sarcastic marker on this recommendation. We're not actually <laughs> suggesting you buy speculative garbage altcoins. But what is Arthur suggesting? Well, Arthur echoes a sentiment that I've heard from Zoltan Hozar, from Pippa Malgram. And these are people who, on the one hand, we think Zoltan is a serious analyst of financial system planning. His Bretton Woods 3 article was really interesting, really good timing. But then he went a little bit further and he kind of moves into 
a new Cold War, a new sort of geopolitical Thucydides trap style global conflict. I feel like I've been hearing this from several commentators. It's, it, 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 the new Cold War has already begun, don't you know? And I think Pippa Malgram is part of this. I think Pippa is a bit of a joke. She's promoted Web3 startup type scams before. I don't know if there was a token involved, but she has very cringily promoted Web3 type startup scams when she clearly understood nothing about the underlying technology and had the most low rent tech bro there to say words like nanotechnology and AI to back it all up. Oh, AI and nanotechnology. I'm in. I'll sign up. I've got some nanotechnology right here. You got me. Can you see it in my hand? No, it must be really good. It's really nano. Yeah. (laughs) You got, where do I sign? This idea is that World War III has already started, and it started with a undersea cable in northern Europe being cut, probably by Russians, maybe. Who knows? Or maybe it was cut by a storm. Who knows? So it's this very vague idea that there is a conflict happening in cyberspace, in energy markets, in infrastructure. It's kind of a big conspiracy theory. It's one of those things that's very hard to disprove. You'll see confirmation of this viewpoint in the random fluctuations of the world. I personally find pronouncements like this to be incredibly fear-mongery and BS because at the end of the day, our thesis is that people are not that smart or very short-term and the idea that there's some sort of big, clever plan to silently wage cyber warfare and people actually have goals that are long-term is nonsense. All of the political class, to my understanding, just want to survive the next election cycle or if they're in an authoritarian regime, survive. So their thinking is very short term and I don't think there's any big conspiracy. But that said, if we look at what happens in countries during war, there is this thing called wartime finance. And we don't actually need a global military conflict to be in a state of wartime finance. I think that we actually are in a state of wartime finance, mainly because wartime finance is a period where the state needs to buy a lot of materials to sustain itself or it will be taken over by another state and new ruling elites. So the way I think about wartime finance is that it's the spending that the political class needs to maintain themselves. They need to spend some money so that they remain the political class. Why does that keep them the political class? Because if they don't spend the money, Uh there'll be a new political class. Either there'll be an internal uprising Uh, uh, or a... It'll cause strife. This could be a democratic uprising, sort of new people getting elected. Imagine AOC, but actually, you know, doing things. Or Bernie Sanders, but 70 years younger and five of them. It just, to me, seems like the kind of spending we've seen since 9-11 has just been off the charts. It's just been so much military spending. Does that constitute as wartime spending? Well, military spending is, in my view, a form of social welfare, but it mainly goes to military defense companies. So it's kind of a bailout for a certain class of American, probably not what we would normally consider welfare. Corporate welfare would be the right term. But I think that what we're getting at is that in a debt crisis, you have kind of two options. One is you default and cause a financial crisis, which almost inevitably results in a new political class, or you soft default and you attempt to run inflation very hot and confiscate the purchasing 
purchasing power of your citizens quietly using inflation. And also quietly bump them into new tax brackets, which also helps with revenue. And this allows you to maintain a political system that is probably not doing great, but this is a, a way to sort of keep the ball rolling, kick the can further down the road. And that's kind of wartime finance. And one big aspect of this is called capital controls. And this is what Arthur focuses on in this essay. And capital controls are basically closing the exits of money from your country. So if all of a sudden the U.S. raises taxes and if you have more than $1,000 in your bank account, you're going to get taxed. Well, you might get the idea to, I don't know, send money to a bank account you control in England or something like that. Or what about just stash your, you know, your cash into Bitcoin? Well, first of all, cash is being slowly outlawed. So go to the bank, try to get cash, and they're probably going to ask to see your driver's license. Mm -hmm. What do you need this cash for? What are you buying? That was actually asked to me the other day. Yeah, me too. And I was shocked. And frankly, for me, it was very hard to be cool. And I said, that's none of your business. You did, huh? I did say that. Oh, I caved like a little boy. I was like, oh, I just need to buy tires. No, I I should have said tires or a boat or something. But instead, I I was silly. I got emotional. I said, listen, that's none of your business. And I'm shocked you would ask that. And frankly, I think that when I say that in three years, they're going to close my bank account. Yeah, they'll flag you as a risk. Right. I'm high risk because I don't want to tell you what I'm doing with my money. How sneaky is that? He's probably doing something bad. I also do not like asking for my money. I don't even like having to call in and can I please raise my debit card limit today? I'm, I'm trying to buy something for my home. Can I can I please have my money? It's like the system is trying to perennial. Uh, They're being perennial almost get us used to this relationship where we put money in the bank, but it's not really ours. And legally, it's not. Every time I have one of those interactions, I go, this is why this is why Bitcoin. This is why. Capital controls prevents you from using money the way you want to use it. It reduces your options for money and it results in people being coerced into putting money where the government wants it, often into government bonds. Yeah. So don't do peer-to-peer exchanges. Don't try to get your money into another country. Right. The crackdown on peer-to-peer trading is part of this. And this is what's happened in China. China used to be, 15 years ago, a cash economy. Then they rapidly turned into a digital payments economy using platforms like WeChat and Alipay. And people thought this was cash. They thought they could just use it like cash and no biggie. And then people's accounts started getting frozen. And this was very connected to the Chinese government attempting to control the renminbi dollar exchange rate. And so that was actually a form of capital control. And it reduces the sort of monetary freedom of individuals. And I'm not going to go through the full essay because it's quite long. There's a lot of really good history in here. But are says something pretty important. He says the PSA is that the time to buy Bitcoin is now because Bitcoin is the money that can completely resist these capital controls. It completely insulates you from government monetary policy and policies of confiscation. But the time to buy Bitcoin is now. And I completely agree because we've been saying this for years. So maybe we were too early. But once you run into regimes like wartime finance, like capital controls that are designed to basically take purchasing power from a population. Bitcoin is a threat to these policies and it will be attacked. The on-ramps are the only vulnerable point in the Bitcoin ecosystem and that will be attacked. Yeah. And he does lay out a lot of the history that kind of shows this happens during times of conflict. These kinds of controls, you know, withdrawal limits. We've talked about them before. There's withdrawal limits in Russia. There's withdrawal limits in Ukraine right now on how much money you can take out of your bank account. It's not something that only happens in these far lands. It's something that can happen during wartime conflicts, even in the West. And I think that's a great point. It's like right now it's it's never 
never going to be an easier time to exit into Bitcoin. It's never going to get easier. It's only going to get trickier. In 2016, most exchanges did not have KYC. Right. And now they all do. The first Bitcoin I ever bought, it wasn't until I got back into Bitcoin years later and started buying again that I ever KYC. The first time I ever went through KYC was years later. In fact, that's why some of these stories resonate with me because some of the first Bitcoin I ever paid for after I stopped mining was peer-to-peer transactions from random audience members that I didn't know their background. I don't know what they did with that Bitcoin. Yeah, it could have been Pablo Linus Escobar. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, if they're early into Bitcoin, they must be deviants, right? (laughs) Everyone listening to this podcast, you are a thought criminal. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry about that. We'll just uh, hang out together. We'll all be thought criminals together. And speaking of thought criminals, have you ever heard of Vaslav Smil? No, I don't think so. Well, he is an economist. He is an economics professor at the University of Manitoba in Canada. And he's someone who has been painted as a shill for big oil. Frankly, he might be, because if you say anything that isn't negative about big oil, they'll probably give you some money. But at the end of the day, big oil, it makes a lot of energy. We all used gas to get here today. Are we going to deny that? You know, I'm not celebrating in it. I'm not bathing in it, but kind of need gas. Yeah, there's a real practicalness to it. He says that he's just taking a scientific approach to this, is that he looks at like all these worst case scenarios that people are predicting. And he says, okay, well, let's just take a scientific look at this. Let's look at the value hydrocarbons provide and a realistic way to transition off of them. Like, I don't think he's even saying don't transition completely. He's saying, let's just be realistic about it, which honestly just feels like what we've been saying. I guess if we were saying on a public stage, like he does to the venues he does, we'd probably be, we'd probably be in trouble too, actually. Okay, so this is the New York Times. Some might agree with your conclusions and then become hopeless about humanity's ability to address climate change in any meaningful way. What would you say to them? The old Romans knew it well. I think he has a Russian accent. Can you do a Russian accent? The old Romans knew it well. (laughs) (laughs) He says, uh, where difficult matters are at stake, the change is best affected by slow but relentless progress. This is like my life. And when I think about things, I think, like, realistically, it's always a long slog to really get there. He goes on to say, evolutions are always preferable to revolutions. No kidding. No kidding. We should preserve doing many small things and eventually they add up. But so far we are not even seriously trying. See the ascent of SUVs, the pervasiveness of excessive flying, the food supermarkets that now average 40,000 items. That all requires plenty of carbon. And there we go. I think about this too. Like I go to the grocery store and all that's been brought in by truck and by plane. I think if you shut off all hydrocarbons for a week, society would collapse. It's so funny how we as a general population can grow to hate something that feeds us. We're biting the hand that feeds us. And instead of doing, as this author or as this uh, individual points out, instead of doing some sort of elegant transition, we're really messing it up. It kind of reminds me of that book on financial panics or financial speculation that I was mentioning in that financial speculation seems to be a part of humanity and we resent it. We find it degenerate. And I think that oil and fossil fuels, it seems similar because it's clearly the basis for our society in many ways ways in terms of the energy we use. When I look around this office, all of the plastic computer cases, the wires and stuff, all of this was produced using well, fossil yeah. fuels. And even the components to assemble this mixer or this monitor or this laptop, right. the individual components were shipped all over the world to a place to get it manufactured. And it's just the scale of our dependence is systemic. And to discover that actually this material is heating the planet and causing mass extinction and all sorts of negative externalities 
it's pretty dark and it's easy to kind of reject it, but in a sort of superficial and not too self-exploratory way. Yeah, we end up with paper straws and no plastic bags, but we're still using the same exact amount of hydrocarbons. More every year. I just wanted to include this because I think that we've talked about this issue. It's nice to hear someone else thinking about it in a slightly different way. An energy historian at that, right? Right. There's another energy historian who has a great book called Hard Times in the 21st Century, which I just began to read. Uh, Her name is Helen Thompson, and her thesis is that Europe began to decline at the advent of the age of oil because Europe had some coal, except not Italy and Spain. So these Southern European countries that have always had problems, they really only started having problems since the Industrial Revolution. Italy was the home of Rome. You know, they were an empire when Germany and France were just a mess. Why? Well, maybe because back then their warmer climate was better for simple non-industrial agriculture. They were a little bit more productive. They had a little bit more food. They could build up a big army and organize society. But then in the industrial age, Italy doesn't even have coal. So they couldn't really participate in the industrial revolution to the same extent as the British and the Germans. That is fascinating. You know, those little domino effects, how those things can impact an entire culture and society. That's where we're at with hydrocarbons. And it's just completely, I think, almost misunderstood by everyone. Every politician, every citizen. Everyone thinks oil. Okay, that means Middle East, Saudi Arabia, right? No, the first oil rush was in Texas. Like the United States brought oil to the market, to the world, and then they discovered it in the Middle East. So that was kind of the beginning of the U.S. world, U.S. dominance, maybe even the petrodollar in a certain sense. Yeah. Definitely worth the uh, trip to the show notes to get that one. And just to double down on hydrocarbons, there was some news this week that the Nord Stream 1 gas pipeline from Russia to Europe has been shut down indefinitely and will only be restarted when sanctions against Russia are lifted. Were you surprised at this? Not at all. You know, when they started playing around with the maintenance shenanigans, that was, I believe, their negotiation, you know, playing chicken right there. Saying, like, let's see how far we can push this. Let's give them a little warning shot across the bow. And then when, when, Uh, the Western sanctions didn't change. They didn't tweak them. You know, Russia really has every incentive to shut this thing down. They are making a boatload selling this stuff to China and India, who's turning around and selling it to Europe at a massive markup. So it's not like they don't have a customer and it's making them plenty of money and it's only strengthening their relationship with China. And the proposed counter is this really crazy idea that I think Janet Yellen floated. Is it a UN proposal that somehow you impose a price cap on Russia oil, which is pretty crazy because if you can't control Russian exports, then you can't cap that price. And they can't control Russian exports because, I don't know, if you started shooting torpedoes at Russian (laughs) oil freighters, I'm pretty sure Russia might respond with an ICBM or something. I've been trying to work this logic out, right? Because they're talking tough with price controls on Russian oil as if they control the flow. And I'm thinking, is this, I I want to know if you agree or if you disagree, is this a sign that they are truly out of options that are viable. And so now they're just they're just talking the talk because they think that's what people want to hear. Yes, I think that it's complicated with these UN resolutions because you need a lot of countries to sign off. So if you look at the resolution, Japan gets an exemption. Yeah, there's a there's a red flag. Why do they get an exemption? And the answer is because the thing doesn't work. So Japan wouldn't have signed off if they didn't get an exemption. So it kind of lets you know that the whole proposal doesn't work. I think it's a difficult situation because we're in the middle of the election cycle in the U.S. If 
if the administration pivots and starts looking soft on Russia and anti-Ukraine or something, that might be bad from a staying in office point of view. So maybe they feel trapped. I mean, they definitely seem all in. You know, they're, they're wrestling up another $14 billion in the next couple of weeks to send over there. Speaking of billions, Gazprom, the Russian state-owned energy company, has apparently been getting paid in Chinese renminbi for gas. Uh-oh, petrodollar. I guess I expected this to be harder to pull off, but I guess there's no repercussions. Like I thought the, if the, to me, it seemed like the United States would react strongly, but there seems like there's no reaction from the United States. What are they going to do? Try to punish China, which is one-sixth of the human population, the source of most of the U.S.'s consumer goods. There's no lever to punish yeah. China There's nothing they can do. Gazprom. Yeah, this is great. This is great for them. That's great for them. <laughs> Bad for U.S. dollars. Great for them. <laughs> and then the last bit of Ooh. Russia news is that there was some talk about Russia providing a legal framework for using cryptocurrency to import things, mainly due to their problems with processing payments in the U.S.-dominated global banking system. What do, you, do you think this starts with energy or do you think it starts with smaller goods? Probably smaller goods. And it's interesting because my understanding is that the policy is clearly crypto for the state, not for the citizen. Yeah, yeah, because didn't they? Yeah. That's the same thing with Iran to a degree as well. Crypto for the state and no doubt crypto for certain businesses, right? That's all inevitably what's going to happen, but not for the citizens who would need it as exit from their economy. And that's kind of a red flag to everybody. Like, hey, maybe this thing is pretty useful and we should, you know, check it out as individual citizens because the government seems to find it useful. So it's interesting how they're using it, but they don't want us to. They don't say Bitcoin specifically, though. They just say crypto. No one says Bitcoin specifically. I wonder why that is. Yeah, maybe they don't want to. Uh, cause the price to go up. Also, I feel like if you say Bitcoin, you seem stupid today. If you say crypto or smart contracts, that's more sophisticated, maybe from an investor or geopolitical point of view, maybe. I guess I'm surprised in this context. I guess I'm surprised the term digital assets isn't used more. That seems more appropriate. You know, digital assets. Well, it's being used as currency. They're buying things. So you wouldn't say mm. now we can use Apple stock to buy imports. So then why don't they say digital currency? I mean, crypto is, uh, it feels slangy. It feels like internet slang. And then you have states that are announcing they're going to use it. But I think we're part of a <laughs> subculture. So we might not have a good sense of yeah. mainstream language on this subject. And by popular demand, we have brought back the privacy section of the podcast with Janine's August 2022 This Month in Bitcoin Privacy Newsletter, which is a little misleading because it's actually four months or three months of research. I think she took a summer break. And this is really an entire podcast. You know, if we ever needed more episodes, we could just read her newsletter. Yeah, I, I could totally see a Bitcoin privacy show. There's so much in this, but one of the things that she covered here is a very nice update to join market with version 0.96. They're now enabling a quasi peer-to-peer onion-based messaging protocol, as they put it. And so the idea, right, is that you can start a secure chat when you're trying to set up a join market. And I feel like this one, out of all of the updates in here, sort of resonates with me the most because I could see in a year or less having a, run, me personally running a join market <laughs> and just telling the audience, hey, if you want to join some coins, here you go. But I think having something like a, a, a P2P onion-based messaging built in, that's great. And I guess they also, and you might understand this better than I would, they have some changes to their uh, fidelity bond valuation. They say it no longer is the square of a bond BTC value. I, I don't know if that's important, but the fidelity aspect of it is an important aspect of the overall join market. I think that there is an iterative process to figure out the optimal weighting of a fidelity bond. Mm. 
because a, a fidelity bond needs to be an anti-Sybil technique. So if I have 10 personalities and I put 10 Bitcoin into 10 different fidelity bonds of one Bitcoin each, that should provide me less fidelity than having one Bitcoin bond of 10 BTC. So there has to be a non-linear weighting of each individual bond or else the Sybil attackers, they just create many, many fidelity bonds. So I don't know the most mathematically efficient way to weigh it, but it seems like they're that's iterating they're, through that. They're tweaking on. Uh, the other thing that's just sort of jumped out in this same kind of category is we didn't cover it, but on May 29th when it happened, RoboSats did a pretty big announcement. They now have a transparent and easy to audit secure chat system that they're just putting out there and say, you, anybody can review it. We think we have something really great here. It's based on the open PGP standard and just gave me a chance to mention that RoboSats just keeps getting better. They also now have an Umbral app, which is RoboSats does, which is just incredible. I think there's also an interesting story here called the Fog of analysis. And it's based on a Wired article about the defense of a man named Roman Sterlingov, a 33-year-old Swedish-Russian national who was arrested by the IRS at Los Angeles airport in April 2021, accused of operating a Bitcoin mixing service called Bitcoin Fog. He's been in jail for a year. And to quote, I did not create Bitcoin Fog. I was never an administrator of Bitcoin Fog. I've been here for more than a year now. I'm really perplexed at the system that could put me in here at what they could do to an innocent man. It's a Kafka-esque nightmare. Seriously. The issue is that he was basically implicated using chainalysis type techniques. And he's got a lawyer named Eklund who specializes in Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, national security issue type cases. Basically cases where the law is really out of sync with the technology and white hat hackers and security professionals and people who understand technology are basically being punished because they're often bringing up problems with open systems. You can think of that situation where a journalist looked at a website and could see some private data and then some governor accused them of hacking. Yeah, they, uh, they're they often the ones pushing the boundaries and discovering new capabilities. And to your point about the people then that are judging this don't understand these technologies, it seems their whole nightmare where they're now just apparently sitting, rotting away, their whole nightmare started with an IRS investigation who then sent it up to the Justice Department to take it further. That is frightening. We should have started the episode with this quote from lawyer Tor Eklund. This is a story of people profiteering and advancing their careers, throwing people in jail to promote their blockchain and analysis tool that is junk science and doesn't withstand any scrutiny, says Eklund. Hashtag free Roman. So yeah, add that hashtag, maybe bring a little more attention to this poor person's situation. And I wish them the best with that lawsuit because it will challenge the data provided by Chainalysis and another blockchain analytics company called Exigent. Mm, I've heard of them before too. And frankly, I just think that these pay for spying companies are just absolute garbage. I know people who have worked for them. I played nice to learn more about their techniques. Frankly, it wasn't worth it because putting up with you folks with no morals was a real chore. And I really think you need to look at your life and you know, just... <laughs> You understand. Tell Look, you you're, you're, the bad, you're the bad guy. Okay. Look in the mirror. There are skulls on your uniforms. 
You are the bad guy. Yeah, you're the baddies. Yeah, you know how often chain analysis ends up when we're doing digging to find like somebody got in trouble? Almost chain analysis almost always shows up in there. And the idea... And it's non-deterministic. Chain analysis is a probabilistic tool. Yes. A probabilistic tool is okay for forecasting. It's okay for sort of general analysis. It is not okay for criminal investigations. Not for destroying someone's life. No. And I also withdraw my idea about running a joint market for the audience. I am not getting involved. <laughs> Or a fediment or a liquid validator. Gosh, a fediment. Uh, yeah, I mean. That's custodial. That I hate, could be an OFAC violation. I hate the idea that I'm going to be afraid to play around with some of these new innovations because as a small business, I may one day get investigated by the IRS. Right, because you do business. And therefore, if on a business podcast, yeah. you mention a thing and they say that's financial, they're like, well, now you're a money transmitter. It's right. a nightmare. It is. It is a nightmare. And you got to imagine there's probably only just going to be more of that. So uh, I'm not going to run a coin joint actually think it would be a really great service if, you know, a, if a, a relatively small but proportionally large, you know, for these kinds of things, community could have some of these things on their own that they could trust. I actually think it'd be a good thing for people and their privacy. But it sounds like the risk is I end up, you know, if the IRS, like, hey, what, what is this income? What is this? What is this right here? I see this coming and going. What is this? I wanted to get into this on the Arthur piece about capital controls and mm. sort of macroeconomic doom porn and that kind of right. thing. Yeah, that's what Arthur Hayes's post really felt like was doom porn. I think that we talk about a lot of large scale trends in society and technology that are pretty dark and can seem very scary and depressing. And I agree. I mean, stories like this about people who are being essentially abused by law enforcement because law enforcement has some agenda. And you can just see in the story of these cases that there is not a priority towards innocent until proven guilty. There is definitely a priority towards we're a big institution. We can throw our weight around. And what are you going to do? You're just a little person. That's unfortunately an aspect of the world we live in. And I think it's important to recognize that that exists and to try to take common sense protection for yourself and your family to prevent being one of these stories. I'm not blaming the people who've had the misfortune to be in this situation. I'm just saying that I don't think they would want you to be in the same situation either. And that means taking common sense approaches to protecting yourself from this sort of situation. And that means privacy. That means data sovereignty. You know, there are stories about people who've really had their lives, um, screwed up because of the way that Google and Apple scan pictures in your phone. So if you are just using stock cell phones and, you know, there's a story of a, a gentleman whose uh, baby had a skin condition and he was taking a picture of the skin condition and this naked baby triggered their anti-child pornography algorithm and this deplatformed the person. Worse than that, they also downloaded all of his nearly 14, 15 years of Google history, every chat, email, his Google Docs, and they send it to the police automatically. And then because he was a Google Fi cell phone customer, they turned off his cell service. So the police actually had to physically find him and say, luckily for him, he didn't get a police department that needed to get a conviction to advance someone's career. It was a reasonable group of law enforcement professionals who said, hey, there's nothing here and we're sorry about it, but we couldn't get in contact with you. And the guy said, yeah, because my whole life was on Google and they canceled me. Now, you don't want that to be you. And it's complicated to divorce yourself from these systems because we've all been encouraged to rely on them. And they provide value. There's They're valuable things and they're doing it for cheap to free sometimes. Yeah. And I transitioned away from the Google Cloud to NextCloud that I run myself. And I'll be honest, it's definitely not for everyone. It is kind of difficult. And I've had frustrations with that. At the same time, for me, it's worth it because, you know, I just feel so powerless when I'm dealing with stuff on Google. You know, I don't control it and I just feel like I'm at the mercy of this big organization. And I think it's easy to feel that way when you read stories like this 
this, when you listen to our analysis of issues around capital controls and this sort of predatory government policy that Arthur brings up. And so I just want to encourage everybody to focus on taking actionable steps in your own life that makes you feel positive and gives you a sense of taking back some power from these institutions and these trends that are sort of designed to disempower you. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. And there's a lot of positivity when you start looking in there. Um, like for an example, uh, the concerns about food shortages and, and the price of food inflation. My wife and I turned that into building a garden and a lot of positivity came out of that. We just had an absolute abundant garden this year. We're just eating so clean, so much good fresh foods. And that is a very positive thing that makes me feel like I'm doing something to gain skills and, you know, take dependence off of the supermarkets and stuff. For sure. So I think another thing to mention is that we focus on some of these negative trends because I think that chance favors the prepared mind. There's a lot of positive in these trends too. The simple fact that we do have options to our fiat system that seems to be in some kind of terminal decline is super positive. And it's also pretty rational that the people who are highly invested in the power structures of this fiat system would be pretty hostile to this new technology that we're all using. And would constantly downplay its advantages, would be constantly looking at ways to slow its adoption. It's just their natural incentive. Right. And so I think that we are in this mix of first they fight you and they join you. It feels like they're fighting Bitcoin and joining it simultaneously. But that's probably how we inevitably win is more people join than fight it. Well, actually, I feel like a good bout of fighting is almost positive long term, because if I were in charge of undermining Bitcoin, what I would do is embrace it and encourage the creation of Bitcoin ETFs, Bitcoin financial products, Bitcoin fiat integration. And then we might end up in a situation where a huge percentage of the Bitcoin supply is in regulated products and regulated custodians. And it would be it'd be Western companies. At which point you've got enough Bitcoin to be able to pump and dump the price and control on and off ramps and you lose sort of the cypherpunk freedom ideals of the whole project. Yeah, you're right. In a way, it is almost better that it doesn't get ma mainstream massive adoption right away and that we go through this. Everything is worse first. They try everything else. They really take this philosophy that we've been on for the last 50 years to the ultimate conclusion, discover there's nothing there, it's bankrupt, and, you know, then return to the mean, just like we're seeing with things like we're going to return to the mean with energy. We're going to do it with money, too. It's just going to take longer. And like you said, they're going to fight it for as long as possible. They're going to extend the current reign, and maybe it's for the best. Maybe it keeps the price of uh, sats suppressed, and we can pick some up for good prices for longer. There's positives to that, too. It just, it really comes down to time preference, and I think that's one thing Bitcoiners are probably a little better at understanding than most. That's a good point. Low time preference. Yeah. It's funny. Um, yeah, like a year ago when Bitcoin was pumping, I was almost feeling like... You'd missed it. It's too late. Me too. I was sad about it. And now we're back at the bear market and I'm sad about that too. It's like I'm never happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'm more positive overall, but you're right. There's times where I, I like, I miss the feeling that you get when the price is going up and you look at something and you go, yeah, I could afford that if I really wanted to. You know, like that's nice, but it's just an illusion. It speaks to the history of speculation. It's always fun to FOMO, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it is ultimately for the best. I think you're right. A little bit of prolonged fighting is probably ultimately going to make Bitcoin healthier. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a super sweet podcast with two cool dudes who talk about running your own digital infrastructure, whether it's on an old laptop, a old x86 box, a Raspberry Pi, a Rock Pi, oh, a Rock Pro. Sure. 
all of these things. They're computers. You can run things on them. And I hear that the self-hosted show likes the Umbral project for a Bitcoin node in a box. It's true. There is also a Bitcoin node in a box project called Citadel, which is pretty similar to Umbral. Also one called Raspi Blitz. Or is it Raspi Bolt or Raspi Blitz? No, you got it. Yep. Okay. Maybe there's might be one Bolt too, but I definitely know there's the Raspi Blitz. Bolt is like the earlier one, I yeah, think. Yeah, maybe. It's like more manual. And you got to give a shout out to Nick's Bitcoin too, just because it's great. Nick's Bitcoin, which I think is cross-platform, right? Yeah, you can put it on any Nick's box. You can turn any Nick's box into a Nick's Bitcoin box. Boom. We talk about that. So self-hosted, not just Bitcoin, but you could learn a lot applicable to Bitcoin there. Check it out on any podcast app, self-hosted show, or at selfhosted.show on the interwebs. On the subject of Umbral, this week's Bitcoin education section will be a discussion on upgrading Umbral to version 0.5, which has been a little difficult for your Bitcoin dad until Chris told me about a command line trick. Yeah, this is pretty handy, and you can generally get more current guidance in their community forum. Like if you're having a problem, you take that error and you search for it in their forum. You'll generally, I think that's how I originally discovered this, but on your system, if you have Umbral installed and you're, you know, enjoying Umbral as a Bitcoin node and its application platform goodness, if you log into that box on the command line that you have installed on and you go to wherever Umbral is, you'll find that there's a scripts folder in there. And if you go into that scripts folder, there's all kinds of different scripts, but one of them is the upgrade script. The only thing tricky about it is you have to give it the repo and the version you specifically want to upgrade to. This is where I point you to the form. It's almost, you'll almost always find what the syntax is in the form. But right there, the nice thing is if you run that script on the command line, you'll get a verbose output of what's actually happening. So if you ever had this problem where you tried to do the update from the GUI and it just sits there and says, please wait a minute, and it never completes, or it says it completes and it comes up and it hasn't changed versions, you might try this because it's worked for my system. Yeah, I just was looking in the forum and there is a description of running the manual scripts to do an update. So we'll link to that in the shows. The shows. <laughs> I think that should be what they're called. The show notes? The show notes. Okay, and I will be trying that. So if the show lightning node is down, you know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll find out a lot right along with us. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. Also consider joining our show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. That is linked in the notes. It's federated chat, super cool, distributed. You gotta throw like decentralized in there. Decentralized. Community governed. I don't know. I mean, it's not really all those things unless you run your own Matrix server. Which we do. Which you could too. Yeah. Check out selfhosted.show. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's two plugs. I'm going to get a bonus this week. Right, of course. A big self-hosted money. Just big money in self-hosting. I know. Who says you can't make money from a podcast? Everyone. Everyone. It's impossible. <laughs> You'll never make money doing a podcast. Well, we have some boosts. Remember, we now have a minimum boost to be read on the show limit of 2,000 sats, which I think is about, I want to say, 40 cents or something like that. Actually, that sounds cheap. But we often violate that limit because our community is so cool and sends in really fun boosts that are less than that. We read them all. So if there's a good one or one that we just particularly like. I get a lot of value from boosts, including life advice, um, um, very rarely abuse. I mean, just paying any money. No, it's no usually, one... I find it to be pretty valuable signal for show feedback. I mean, even people who disagree will send in something pretty constructive and that's led to interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Matt is one of those 3000 sats. He says the moon wallet is self custodial. It's like magic. And they write in their app, sco- app store description, moon wallets fully custodial 
self-custodial. It's a self-custodial wallet, meaning you are in total control of your Bitcoin. Moon is pretty great. I got to say, they're doing a good job. The, the one thing where they kind of get custodial for a few hot minutes, I believe, is when you're loading light, uh, Bitcoin on and off the Lightning Network. I think they're managing the channels for you on the back end. I mean, they must be. I think that's a correction because we yeah. said that Moon is custodial. You're right. It's technically What's a wrong? boost correction. Boost correction. Thank, Thank you, you so awesome, much. Man. And then we had an under-the-limit boost from user 796. Hello from Italy. How great is that? That's so awesome. We need to say hello back in Italian. Yeah. No, Italian? Maybe they could boost in and tell us how to say it. I want to say bien. Buongiorno. Okay. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Uh, what I thought was neat about this boost, besides the fact that he's from Italy, is that he was able to send, a f- or they were able to send a fraction of a penny from Italy, right? That is so, I don't know, it just shows you how great the Lightning Network is. This is also how you hack your way onto the show. Send a one sat boost, but say it's from a country yeah. we haven't listed on the show yet. And then we're like, we like worldwide technology. Look at it. I know. It's going to be, hello from Rwanda. I'm down. Hello from Antarctica. Antarctica. Okay, yeah, right. But if you do go to Antarctica and you're Antarctica and you're listening to the pod, you gotta boost in. That'd be so great. Join the Matrix chat and send a picture too. The <laughs> South Pole. We received a row of ducks, two, 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 two sats from DPG, boosting in to let you guys know I'm still listening weekly and have just refilled my sats. Good to know. Thank you, DPG. Thank goodness. We were worried. We were. We really need that affirmation. You don't want a man overboard. No. You know, we got to know you're out there. We've missed you. Uh, is this a new one? Smart Growth, 10,000 sats. New listener. Yep. Stumbled across you on Fountain, and I love the show. Just the right balance of info and entertainment. Where's the entertainment? I think that's the stuff we accidentally do. Uh, yeah. That's all right. Because I've had this feeling, are they laughing with us or at us? Either way, it's content. Uh, but he has a question for us. Similar one we've gotten before. Are there any platforms to market in real life products for Bitcoin? In other words, I think he wants to like market something he's selling for Bitcoin. I'm trying to increase my pastured meat sales specifically to the BTC community in San Antonio, Texas, smartgrowthfarm.com. I think there is literally a Bitcoin meat initiative. I would search for Texas Slim, I think is kind of involved with this. Yeah, and the beef initiative where they're, uh, in fact, that's how I found um, my uh, farmer that I'm I'm going to buy my cow from this year is I found them, I was looking for farmers who accept Bitcoin. So there's definitely a market out there of people. And I think it's interesting. I don't know why, but something about farmers getting into Bitcoin, I just find Absolutely fascinating. Another idea is I'm checking out your website. Pretty nice. Um, there's like a, you can buy foodstuffs on the website. You can connect a BTC pay server to this very easily. And that means that you can accept Bitcoin payments non-custodially. You are your own bank there. And if you want some ideas or help with this, uh, send in an email and I can link you to some resources or whatever. That is a great tip. A BTC pay server seems like definitely the way to go. And I think they might even have some WordPress plugins out there. Smartgrowthfarms.com. Usain Bolt sent in 2,000 sats. Great feedback on the Bitbox versus cold card. And hey, thanks for those links before. Just a quick note, there is a Bitbox version with only Bitcoin to decrease the attack surface. And Bitbox allows you to add your own entropy. Great advice on not having the wallet sent to a home address. Unfortunately, I don't have a work address. Has anyone heard of a virtual PO box such as below? Usain links to US Global Mail com seems more private and cheaper than a real PO box. Okay, hmm. I have read Michael Basil's book, How to Disappear in America. This is a really good... I'm writing that down. <laughs> 
<laughs> for no reason. Future IRS and government agents. I'm just, I like to read. Actually, there's a lot of tips for RV life in there. So, okay, PO boxes are a little tricky. There are these companies that will sort of do mail forwarding. Yeah, those are popular in the RV community, actually. And Michael Basil looks at them. They have various disclosures you have to do. Some are better than others. If you look up Michael Basil, his latest book generally has an up-to-date list. I don't know if he publishes that on his website. He might want you to buy the, the book to find this list, but I don't recall the names of these. What I would say is I think a P.O. box is frankly a good idea for all your mail because your physical address is just leaked through so many different services. I mean, for me, it's a mess. It's so scary to me. I just get random mail. I get random credit card offers. It's really oh. bad. Oh, it's bad. It's really bad. I think a P.O. box is a lot better in many ways, in particular because for all of those low effort corporations that are selling your data, they're not going to do any work to pierce the P.O. box. So especially if you're moving and you're changing your physical address, always get a P.O. box, in my opinion. I think that that's just a default. Is a virtual P.O. box better? I think it really depends on the company, what their privacy policy is, how honest they are about their privacy policy. I think there's a lot that could go wrong there. With a virtual P.O. box, you're not protecting yourself from state-level attacks. Again, there are very few things that do protect you from state-level attacks other than self-custodied Bitcoin. But frankly, I feel like there is less question marks with just a straight-up mailbox P.O. I think the other thing, too, that we say a lot of times when it comes to your Bitcoin OPSEC is uh, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. You know, you could do something similar to what I did. I won't say specifically, but I just had it arranged to have mine sent to somebody just to just add a layer of abstraction between me and the address that's on the account, any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, is it the most ideal anonymous solution? No, but either is sending it to my workplace. So it doesn't have to be a workplace. It could be a friend or a family member that, you know, you have received mail from you occasionally. Just the idea is to add layers to your onion to make things harder and harder to track back to you. And not everything has to be perfect and something is better than nothing. Right. So I think we would recommend the mailbox PO in this case. Yeah, it seems like a good idea. And I'm having a dad moment. Was our boost limit 2,000 sats or 1,000 sats? I think it was 1,000 on this show, actually. Sorry, it's 1,000, not 2,000. Didn't didn't just... I mean, you said the rules, though, so... 2000 if you say it is. Well, we like to be consistent <laughs> yeah, yeah. because we got a lead boost, 1337 sats from Adopting Bitcoin. Shout out to the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador in November. Still waiting to be boosted an invite, by the way. Join market for the win. I know that Adopting Bitcoin is a huge join market fan, but then it gets spicy. Samurai and Wasabi can get wrecked. Oh, really? All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Adopting Bitcoin is very keen on Joy Market. I am too. I think small join, not small, but islands of join markets are probably going to be better long run than large centralized ones. That's why I am uh, excited that Jam is one of the apps available on Umbral and you can stand up your own join market. Jam is a front end. It's still kind of early, but I've gone through it and it looks totally usable. And we also got a under the limit sat boost from Bitcoin Grandma, who was listening to Going Ad Hominem and said, I just found your podcast. Very interesting stuff. Well, you are very welcome, Bitcoin Grandma. I'm always curious, too, if when you boost in. I'm always curious how you found it. I'd like to know what works. What works for people for finding new pods? You know, because that seems tricky. That is super useful, yeah. And we got a sort of a correction from Ibuki, who's a previous booster, who said, Italy is the third economy in the EU and the eighth globally. I think you calling it a non-entity, it's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> Woo. 
You I know, agree. I, I think too, like, I, I feel like when people say the pigs, I feel like Italy in particular is like, screw you. Whenever you say that. <laughs> it's a nasty term. It is nasty. Yeah. yeah, you know, I really have to look into that. I, I think that I may have fallen victim to stereotypes about Italian business, Italian economy. Though, to be fair, part of the reason I have those stereotypes is for a while, I actually had to work with an Italian subsidiary and dealing with them was like every joke stereotype about Italy. I mean, I'm not kidding. This guy, like you could get him on the phone for like an hour every day. And it was like between 1030 and like 1115. Yep. And otherwise it was all lunch break. I have the exact same experience with somebody I worked in Italy. So I'm sure it's not everybody, but I actually kind of respected it in like a way. I think I was envious. I'm like that guy, he's got this view and he had a beautiful house with a beautiful view and a beautiful yard. So maybe he just had higher, he had better priorities. I hope he was living his best life, yeah. but I, frankly, it made my job pretty difficult. Right, same. Maybe I'm just salty, so I'd like to own that, and thanks for boosting in. Oh, I'm definitely salty. There's no question about that. Well, that has been it for our show today. Remember, you can always contact the show via email, via Twitter, or using a Podcasting 2.0 app. There are some ideas of apps you might use in our show notes. Fountain just had another great update, and their transcription and clipping is getting even better. Thank you to everybody who does. There's a small handful out there that taking clips of the show and spreading it around. Really appreciate that. Oh, that is super great. Thanks so much for helping people find the show. Maybe we could spin that as that could benefit everyone because we'll get more interesting boosts in. Mm. And another option is Podverse, which is a cross-platform self-hosted option. And I have been experimenting with Podverse and I think it will be fully deployed soon. And I am loving it. Yeah, I've been on Podverse for about three weeks now. And one thing that I really, really appreciate about it is that they've integrated with Albi for the boosting. Now, the reason why I like that is because you could actually then take that Albi wallet to other apps. So now instead of having every single app have its own wallet, they're using a standardized API and uh, Albi then connects to my node. It's a pretty slick boosting setup. Very cool. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, September 9th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me. My name's Chris. See you next time, everybody. <laughs>